Actually, I'll bring that up here. This next one. From Genesis 6, verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. After that, the sons of God went to the daughters of men who bore children for them. Those became the powerful, famous men of ancient times. Um, the Nephilim sound like the, basically like superheroes. You know, mythical, mythical people who made some fantastic accomplishments in this world. And so in, in this passage, when he talks about the sons of God and the daughters of men, he's not talking about, um, you know, some have thought, well, maybe it's, it's angels are involved in this somehow. Well, no. God was done creating on day seven. And so the sons of God and the daughters of men, talking about believers and unbelievers. And that the believers started intermarrying with the unbelievers, um, both men and women, you know, it's not just male believers and female unbelievers, but, um, but demonstrating that there's this intermarriage. And over time, the Christians or the believers started losing their faith. And it's in that, it's in that context that we hear about these Nephilim who um, are like ancient mythical heroes is about all that you can, all that you can say. And maybe somebody like Hercules or, or even Robin Hood. Um, more comes up again then. So, yes. The sons of men that you talk about are the human Yeah, the, the sons of the sons of God and the daughters of men are we're all talking about humans there. They're Yeah, and then when we get to Numbers chapter 13, when the spies spy out the promised land, um, there are 10 spies who are like, you know, we can't do this, it's horrible, and the Nephilim are in the land. Um, that is at least 1,000, maybe closer to 3,000 years after the Nephilim were mentioned in Genesis chapter 6. So they're, they're, they aren't accurate in what they're saying. But what they're saying when they, when they say this is that the Nephilim um, are in the language when they say that, that these people are you know, big and strong and they are going to totally, um, totally defeat us in battle and we don't have a chance. And if you read Numbers chapter 13 in context, you really see that, that discussion back and forth between those who are saying we don't have a chance and Joshua and Caleb saying God is going to make it happen. Um, but the reason that they call the Nephilim is like, well, you know, Hercules himself is living in the land of Canaan, if you think of it like that. Uh, kind of overstate. Thank <laughs> you. 
just practicing here. All right, and in this question, you know, why doesn't God address the polygamy of the patriarchs as sinful? Um, and sometimes, some, sometimes that question, you know, we, we get it from somebody else. And they're like, well, look at what happened here. You know, isn't this, isn't this wrong with Abraham or, uh, or Jacob or Judah? Well, it certainly was. And God had already given, had already given his law on people's hearts. Um, he's not going to have another statement until he gets to Mount Sinai when he speaks to the people of Israel there. Um, but the fact that God includes this doesn't immediately say, oh, then you know, this particular sin doesn't matter because look at Abraham. The fact that God includes it, um, actually there might be more to that. Because there's a little bit more in this question of, um, of the polygamy of the patriarchs. How does including the sin of ancient believers add credibility in a worldly sense, the scripture. I think this is, a, this is an important one. I'll give you a minute or two with somebody seated nearby. Here we've got Noah, the first thing that he does after the flood, well, he sacrifices to God, then he plants a vineyard and gets, gets drunk. We've got Abraham, who takes Hagar as a secondary wife, um, and all sorts of other sins throughout the whole book of Genesis. So why or how does including the sin of ancient believers add credibility in a worldly sense to Scripture? Assuming it does. Does right. Christians. 
And so the question, I think this, this last part helps us work, work our minds into that just a little bit. That why didn't God, um, why wasn't God more clear in you know, disciplining Jacob? Well, we see that Jacob definitely dealt with, um, dealt with all the nasty fallout of having multiple wives with his kids arguing and fighting with one another, selling somebody into slavery. Like, you know, I threw, I threw snowballs at my brother. I never sold him into slavery. But God is very clear about the sin and about the fallout of that sin. But the question then, um, what would a person do today? If you, if you, you were a missionary somewhere in the world, and you encounter a culture where legal marriage to multiple spouses is the norm, that, and this, is, this has happened within the ministry history of our church body, that somebody would encounter you know, this, this group of people and where the man is legally married to two, three, four, even five wives if he can support them. And so the question then, this man becomes a Christian and he says, okay, dear Christian missionary, what should I do? <laughs> Think through the options here. Um, should you divorce all except the first wife because she was first? Well, what if you have little babies with the, the final wife and the first wife has all of her ch children grown and functioning on their own? Or do you divorce all but the last wife because she would need the most support? It's a real question to wrestle with. And I think the way that, that our church, you know, most of the pastors of our church body resolved that was to say, um, we know this is wrong. And that it goes against the natural knowledge of God in the heart. But let's do the best possible good with what we have. And so they started with the next generation to say, well, you get married to one person. And that, that commitment is for life. And, um, and that's the way that they resolved it. Because things don't always happen as quickly as we want, right? Um, especially when we're talking about giving the word of God time to work on a person's heart or time to, to change even a cultural structure, that the concept of, of one man, one woman marriage um, in, in America today is a result of Christian teaching from the last at least 500 years. Yes, in back. sins against the, the Sixth Commandment and, and God's institution of marriage, it's easy to play favorites because that sin isn't my sin. Um, whereas everything, every temptation of, of the heart and the norm of the culture around us is going to try to tear down the most basic structure that God has designed, the structure of marriage as one man and one woman. And the Christian church, you know, should be able to say, well, you know, this particular sin of polygamy is wrong, as is this particular sin of the other misuse of the body apart from marriage as, as God designed it. Um, that, we, that, that we speak positively about the blessings of marriage. And then, as Christians who are married, if that is the case for you, that we, 
strive to live up to what God has designed. Obviously, you can tell there's a, there's a lot more that we can talk about with any of these. How about, uh, then we get to the New Testament. Give you a minute or two with somebody seated nearby. What do miracles tell us about Jesus? When we get into talking about the miracles of Jesus, what do miracles tell us about Jesus? I'll give you a minute. So when we talk about the miracles that Jesus did, um, a couple of things that might come to mind. Um, maybe he proves the fact that he is God, definitely. He demonstrates compassion when he, his heart goes out to somebody. Um, he demonstrates his power over not just sin and death, but also the devil when he drives out legions of demons from this man. Um, he demonstrates care for those who are overlooked by society whether it was the leper um, or the woman with an issue of bleeding for a very long time, um, or you know the Canaanite woman, and, he's, and she says that even the dogs get the crumbs that fall from the, the table. That in all those things, the miracles really reinforce for you and for me that this Jesus is true God who came for us. So the question, during his earthly ministry, did Jesus heal everyone who asked him? Good question. This isn't a very good teaching question in the way that I wrote it, because it's just a yes-no question. But I'm not going to answer it with a yes or a no. Yeah. Matthew 13 uh, says this, But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and in his own house. He did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. This doesn't specifically say to whether Jesus, you know, didn't heal somebody who asked him. Every time that we hear about miracles that Jesus did, when people come asking for a miracle, Jesus, Jesus heals them. Um, you know, go home, the demon has left your daughter. Go home, your son is made well. Go home, your servant has been healed. And he was healed from that very hour. But when we do hear when Jesus did not heal somebody, um, here in his hometown of Nazareth, that there in Nazareth, he did not do very many miracles because of their lack of faith. And we also hear about the Pharisees who were demanding miraculous sign. We hear about King Herod on Good Friday morning, um, or very late Good Monday, Thursday evening. Um, we hear about King Herod hoping that Jesus would do some trick. 
And so when, when we see Jesus not doing miracles, we see that he's not doing it just to, um, just to show off. He does miracles for a purpose of pointing to himself as the promised Messiah. That the miracle is the point, that Jesus is the point, right? So then together with that, you know, um, did Jesus heal everyone who asked him? One of the things that might be behind this question, and I mean, all the questions were anonymous, so I don't know the particular circumstances, nor does it really matter. But one of the questions then that comes to mind for the Christian today, well, I've been praying and praying and praying for this not to, for, you know, for a miracle. But it hasn't happened. Well, today, um, in respect to miracles, that faith during Jesus' ministry meant God-given trust that this man is the Messiah. And faith today trusts that our Savior will always answer our prayers with what is best for us. So the fact that Jesus didn't heal some, some people, or he, or he didn't do very many miracles in Nazareth or for the Pharisees or the King of Herod because of their lack of faith, we don't turn that around to say, well, because my miracle hasn't happened in my life, therefore, I don't have enough faith. That's not the case. Um, the faith today exercises itself and is seen in a faith that says, well, God will answer my prayer in the way that he knows best and on his own time. Um, whether that means a you know, so-called miraculous recovery or whether it means that you know, a Christian passes away from their cancer and goes to heaven that day. Um, that God, is, God has demonstrated his goodness in the resurrection of Jesus and he will continue to do what is best for you and for me at his own best time. That's, that's a good one. Um, the question of, you know, doesn't Paul kind of repeat that? That three times Paul pleaded with the Lord to take away the thorn in his flesh, and God said, no, my power is made perfect in weakness. Um, that there's sometimes a greater purpose for that God uses our suffering and, and our weakness. Um, he has a greater purpose. And it will provide opportunity for a Christian confession that we wouldn't otherwise have. Then we get into a number of questions about, um, about heaven and hell and about um, preparing for, for our final days here on earth. Are there levels of hell and are there levels of heaven? This guy um, is probably the best example. You may have heard of the Divine Comedy by a guy named Dante. Um, he usually goes by his first name because nobody really knows how to pronounce his last name. Um, and in Dante, in, in the Divine Comedy, um, Dante kind of goes through the journey of the afterlife. And he reflects Roman Catholic doctrine with talking about levels of hell, but with a, a twist. It's, it's satire, with a twist where he has um, a number of popes in their own specific circle. It is a very strong satire against the Roman Catholic Church. So are there, are there levels of hell? Are there levels of heaven? Dante says, Dante says maybe. Um, I don't know if I would use the term levels. Well, Luke 2 says that the servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare or act according to what his master wanted will be punished severely. But the one who did not know and did something worthy of punishment will be punished lightly. From everyone to whom much was given, much will be expected. From the one who was entrusted with much, much more will be asked. So, 
it's a, it's a terrible thing to be, you know, under the, the eternal wrath of God. Um, and that's terrible for anybody in that, in that state. But in a sense, it'll be worse for those who had been instructed in Christian truth and then deserted it. Because they would also have known what they had and lost. And so, I mean, together with that, you know, that, that influences some of the decisions that we make as a church. That, that we you know, try to instruct people and instruct families before we baptize their babies, for instance. That, um, that baptism provides new life. Baptism provides faith. And we don't want that child to be fully instructed in the Word of God according to you know, what happened at baptism, and then for that child to never hear about God's Word again. And talking about heaven, on the other hand, from Daniel, um, Daniel chapter 12. At that time your people will be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. Many who are sleeping in the dusty ground will awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame, to everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine like the brightness of the sky, and those who bring many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. And so if there are differences um, in heaven, it's not like levels of heaven as if one person is closer to the presence of God than another. We, all, we will all experience the full presence of God and fellowship with one another. Um, but that doesn't, but there may be differences. There may be differences just as there are differences in the, in the color and type of stars. Um, as, as one example, that some stars are like bright red and some stars are, are blue. That there may be differences, but those differences won't be a point of, of friction between people. They'll just simply serve to highlight God's glory. That even that our God brought people together to this wonderful place uh, from all from all backgrounds and using all of um, all of His grace. And then finally, together with that, this gets into our next question as well. When Paul says that flesh is not all the same kind, instead people have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish yet another. There are also celestial bodies and bodies on earth, but the glory of the celestial bodies differs from that of the bodies on earth. There is one glory of the sun, another of the moon, and another of the stars. In fact, one star differs from another in glory. This will get more into our, our next question about, um, about our bodies in heaven. But Paul said, you know, that there may be some differences, but those differences aren't going to be, um, they, they will just glorify God. It's not going to be a point of saying, oh man, that person is shining with a bright white light, and I'm shining with a bright red light, or whatever the case may be. That if there is some differences, that it's not going to be a point of friction, but simply a point of fellowship, and simply, you know, a point of demonstrating God's grace. And that kind of gets us into um, more questions about the afterlife. What will our resurrected bodies be like, and will we have our memories in heaven? When you or I die, hopefully a long time from now for all of us, um, your body and soul separate, and your soul goes to heaven. Your soul is what makes you, you. And you don't stop being you just because your soul and body are now separated. Um, and so, you know, how much, how much will be remembered, we don't know. 
what we do know is that Abraham is still in heaven, and um, or Moses and Elijah returned at the Mount of Transfiguration. They were identifiably Moses and Elijah. In the story that Jesus tells of the rich man and poor Lazarus, Lazarus is still Lazarus, and Abraham is the one um, who says, you know, that you had received your good things in life, and now Lazarus is being comforted here. Um, so, will we have our memories in heaven? Um, the short answer is, I don't know. The, the slightly longer answer is, I really don't know. Um, but you'll still be, <laughs> but you'll still be you. And, uh, and to whatever extent God says that you need to retain your memory in order, your memory of everything in order to still be you, then that would be the case. Um, and I guess that was the, that was the main thing. But that it's not going to cause any friction among people again. And then what will our resurrected bodies be like? Um, so when you die, and then when you're raised again at the last day, at Judgment Day, um, it's that process of death that God uses to put your sinful flesh to death. Like the sin is removed, and you'll be raised with a glorified body. And so what we see is that, um, is that your body will still be your body. You will still be you, and Job says, with my own eyes I will see God. Um, when he says, you know, spiritual body or glorified body, it just means a body as God designed you to be without the corruption of sin. So what will our glorified bodies be like? I think, you know, again, about the best you can say is read 1 Corinthians 15. Or look at the appearances of Jesus on, um, on Easter Sunday evening. You or I might not be able to, you know, transit from one place to another as Jesus did. You know, where he moved from Emmaus to the upper room um, faster than the disciples who ran there. But what we do see when Jesus is in the upper room is that he doesn't have to eat, but he can. That he asks for some food in order to demonstrate that he's not a ghost and that he still has his human body. And so part of, our, part of the way that Revelation describes heaven is that, um, is that the tree of life is there. And that maybe we will be able to eat whether we will have to eat or just have the ability to eat, um, again, that's one that we kind of wait and see. This one's a good one. I've got a two-page answer on this one. I'm not going to recite it all today. Um, Martin Luther didn't include the Apocrypha. That is true. Um, he included it as interesting historical information for the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament so that 400-year span of time. But he did not include it as a source of doctrine for four reasons. Hopefully I remember them all. Number one, um, the Jewish people did not consider it the word of God. Number two, it is not quoted in the New Testament at all. Um, number three, it includes teachings that aren't found anywhere else in Scripture. Three out of four is probably good enough for now. And so he included it and he translated it, but it, it is not part of... Um, part of inspired scripture because even the Jewish people did not accept it as inspired. Um, and if you read it for yourself, you know, whether you're talking about the Apocrypha, um, the books between Malachi and Matthew that do not belong in the Bible, or whether you're talking about other um, supposed writings in the New Testament time, um, like the, the Gospel of Thomas or Gospel of Judas, you can find it online and you'll read it and you'll be like, this is just silly. It, uh, you know, Maccabees and the Apocrypha is kind of interesting history, um, but you'll see that, well, 
There's a lot that happens there that shouldn't be happening. So what about the book of James? Um, Martin Luther is one of those guys who would never say in like two sentences what he could say in 20. Hopefully you don't know anybody like that. And, and so if you're looking for a soundbite from Martin Luther, you can find it. Because he said pretty much everything. Um, and he would, you know, he would literally take like eight pages to say what could be said in about a paragraph. Um, he did say that he didn't see any gospel in the book of James. And that's true. Um, but he also, in other places, spoke about the, the value of the book of James. And so that's where an understanding of um, the setting, I suppose, of the book of James is especially helpful, in that it was written to believers who came from a Jewish background. And so you'll see a lot of themes that he writes in a Jewish style. It was probably written fairly early on, like around the year 40, 45, um, maybe as late as 50, but probably not. Um, written in a very Jewish style and addresses, addresses life for the believer from a very Jewish point of view. Speaking to people who, would, who knew God's law and, and saying, well, this is how you ought to live. Um, basically, you know, died for sanctified Christian living. So did he want to remove the book of James? Uh, no, but he had some questions. And, and I think that understanding of how do you use the book of James, that you're not going to break out the book of James with somebody who's a brand new believer. You're going to start the Gospel of John. Use the book of James with somebody who's been coming to church for 15 years. So we should probably study it this summer, right? Got to throw in a softball question every now and then. Uh, had this question, where did I meet my wife, Desiree? She's sitting over here. <laughs> um, I met her during, during my vicar year at uh, Cross of Life Lutheran Church in Mississauga, Ontario. Mississauga is the west edge of the city of Toronto. Um, so if you think of Toronto, it's basically a sub-sandwich sitting on top of Lake Ontario. It is. It's, it's a very long city with a highway right through the middle, and then a highway on the bottom and a highway on the top. Um, and so, you know, Vicar Year was, was where we met. She was a Sunday school teacher there. Yeah. Finally, we get to, we're going to be wrapping up here in about five, I'd say six minutes. May a Christian be cremated. May a Christian donate organs, and maybe you've seen the, uh, the, the bumper sticker, you know, donate organs because heaven knows we need them here. That, that last part, the bumper sticker, it had, is a deficient view, I think, of, of Christianity. But that's another topic entirely. Uh, may a Christian be cremated? Yes. Um, cremation, historically, back over a thousand years, Cremation was mostly done by pagans, and, um, and then it was brought into the modern era by people who were trying to laugh and scoff about the idea of a resurrection. Well, you say that your God is going to resurrect you, you know, cremate me, and then good luck. And, um, and they would you know, scatter their ashes in a way that, as if to thumb their noses at God and say, well, good luck, bring me back together now. Um, May a Christian be cremated. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about that more, especially um, this coming fall, I suppose. Talking about how do I make a Christian confession? The the question of can a Christian be cremated is yes, you may. Um, although I do think that there is some benefit, and having talked to a couple of funeral directors on this very question, I think there is some benefit in in having a visitation. Um, you know, a little bit of closure for the family to say that you know, Grandma. 
or pastor is really actually gone. Um, and and even even today, I think there are, there's a possibility to have a visitation and then to be cremated afterward. Um, you can talk to your, your local funeral director about that. Uh, but when a Christian is cremated, when that is the case, the encouragement is to always treat that the remains, uh, the cremains, as as we would treat a body. That um, we don't want to be just scattering this on the, the most beautiful beach where he or she loved to go fishing. That it is preferable, I think, to to have the, the creek placed in a mausoleum or, or buried. Um, because, you know, the imagery of 1 Corinthians 15 is of something, you know, a piece of wheat or a piece of grain that is buried and then it sprouts forth in the resurrection. So there's a slight, I guess, a slight preference for burial, I think. Um, just in keeping with the biblical symbolism there. But whatever whatever someone may choose to do with their cremains, the, the purpose is that we um, deal with them in a way that is respectful of the body that God created. And then may a Christian donate organs? Um, yes, you may. Um, and that is something that, you know, whether, whether you're, I guess the short answer is yes. And, and we'll leave it up to God to reassemble our bodies as they are. Um, when we come to the resurrection at the end of time. Um, but that is, that is one ethical way, you know, especially if somebody is passing away, that is one ethical way to help provide for, to help alleviate the suffering of somebody here. Um, that it's true, when your soul goes to heaven, you don't need, you don't need your organs. <laughs> um, but it's also true that we don't do that in a, in a mindless way. Um, we do it with the understanding that Maybe this is how I can glorify God through a godly use of the body, even after I pass away. Another big one. In addition to medical directives and funeral arrangements, how can the Christian prepare emotionally? Um, emotionally for somebody to pass away. That one is, um, is basically, well, how do you pre prepare for a shipwreck? or a car crash. You, got, you prepare for a shipwreck, you've got your life preserver on, you prepare for a car crash, you've got your seatbelt on. Um, but when it comes, you're still going to be hurt. And I think that's, that's really the bottom line. That even though we know death is unnatural, even though we know our loved one is in heaven, even though we know there will be a reunion at the end of time, um, that when somebody passes away, it's always a very emotionally devastating time. Some of that can um, be prepared for through, you know, talking about things ahead of time and having some open and honest conversations. Um, maybe like making a recording for your children or grandchildren about what you believe and, and why. Um, maybe doing some writing. Um, once I find the link, one of our one of our pastors who had served at Shoreland Lutheran, um, south side of Racine, Milwaukee, that area, he had been diagnosed with brain cancer. And he ended up having about 10 months to live. And what he did was he sat and he wrote a blog. And the blog address moved, so I couldn't find it. But um, I, know, I know who knows where it is. Um, and so I'll include that hopefully in our email this week and, um, and have some printouts of that in a week or two. Because his father had been one of our professors at our seminary, and he had that published into a book where uh, Pastor, Pastor Paul Brew is you know, working through the idea of, um, you know, he was like in his early 40s, and he had young kids at home, 
and, uh, and he had, had only been in the ministry for maybe 15 years. Um, the question of, I try to live a healthy life, and then this happens to me, and what's going to happen to my family, and all, a lot of those questions. Um, and he put it into a, into a blog so that people would be able to find it, even after he passed away. So I'll include a little bit more about that um, in our email this week. We've got three more. You've heard this one. Hate the sin, but love the sinner. And that's true. That we, we hate sin. We love people. But this is an incomplete statement. Because who or what is the inhabitant of hell? Sinners. And so, you know, part of this, how do we love the sinner and detest the sin? I think part of this is that we don't play favoritism with sin. That where we often end up with this question, well, you should hate the sin but love the sinner, is that we come into it kind of through the back door. That we have some personal revulsion to somebody's sin, and that we trying to reconcile that with our own emotions. And, um, and then we say, well, I'm supposed to hate the sin and love the sinner, so ah. We don't want to come to this to the back door and say, well, I already personally don't like that particular action and so action, but now I have to be nice to you. I think in practice, that's a lot of the way that this works out. I think in reality, the way it should work out is that God gives us, God is the one who forms the hatred for sin, the, the wariness about sin, like, you know, I don't want to scoop fire into my lap, I don't want to play with sin. Um, you died to sin, how could you go back to it anymore? Romans, uh, Romans 6. And so if we, I think that's, that's the first part, that we let God shape, first of all, our own weariness and hatred of sin. And then we also see and let God shape our love for the sinner. That even though sinners are the ones who are under God's wrath, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Us. That God wasn't playing favoritism with sins. That God sent his son Jesus for all sinners and look around if you've got a room for them, your pastor included. And so I think a fuller statement of this would be that, yes, we hate sin. We let God hate the sinner. And yet God found a way to love the sinner anyway. That God hates sin but loves the sinner. Well, God hates sin, God hates the sinner. And God loves sinners anyway. That he condemns sinners to eternal punishment apart from him. And yet he gave his son to redeem sinners from that punishment. So then how do we... I think part of it is that we, we see sin and we don't play favorites with, with sin. And that we let our, our detest, you know, our, our hatred of sin be shaped by the word of God before we let it be shaped by the culture around us. Because at every generation there's, there's some sin that rises to the top um, and, is, and is there in the news or seems like it's you know, in your face a little bit more than other sins while other sins aren't talked about or other sins are accepted. But if we don't play favorites with sin, then we see, you know, we see a purposeful rejection of the word of God as, as detest, you know, 
hateful, as dangerous as any other um, open or hidden sin. That there's a lot that, that our world would, um, would condone. And the Christian says, well, our God doesn't condone that. I don't want to condone that either, but I love this person. And so that's, that's kind of the final part, is what does love look like? Um, and that's gonna, that's gonna change a little bit depending on the relationship that we have with any person, because um, context always matters. But love, I mean, it doesn't, doesn't condone what God condemns, uh, which is all sin. But then love also uh, finds a way to speak with, with empathy to the person we love about the truth that God has given to us. That we don't just wash our hands and say, well, you know, hate the sin, love the sinner, and move on. That we rather say, I care about this person, and I want to see them in heaven. And even if we only have the conversation once, that's totally fine. That I would rather see this person in church with me um, and still struggling with a particular sin because they need to know Jesus. I guess that's the last part. Is that our hatred of any particular sin isn't going to change the heart. And if somebody changed his or her you know, sinful choice, um, but still, still was absent from the Word of God, then nothing of lasting value would have been brought about. So I guess that, that last part just seen the big picture, that, um, that yes, we welcome everybody, and we want everybody to come in and sit with us and worship. And no matter who or what um, walks, you know, whatever sin uh, happens to be that person's sin, if you know about it or not, we want to welcome them and say, here, sit by me and follow along. We're on hymn number 690, because I want you to know Jesus about everything else. Finally, um, this will be our last one. Is there a follow-up when visitors come to Resurrection? And has there any, been any discussion about retention of the youth? Uh, yes and yes. Um, I, I, I get uh, email addresses and um, phone numbers for our visitors, and then I follow up. Of an anomaly that when, when I came to Resurrection, there was, um, for the most part, like a five-year gap where there's one child in ages like 10 through 17, or maybe two, um, when I came here. And then there was a large number of like 25 to 28 children ages 10 and younger. So for the first three years here, we didn't have a, a youth catechism class at all. And now we've got a catechism class, actually two catechism classes every week, um, in addition to, to some students being taught at home with some materials provided by the pastor. And so this is, this is a, a broader question. And the question had included a little bit more detail, like getting the confirmed youth involved with um, you know, collecting the offering or you know, serving a meal or handbells or things like that. And, and I think that, that brings up a good point, that we want to involve all of our members in meaningful ministry service side by side um, in whatever, whatever form that takes that we don't want to see a project as, well, that's the youth project that I can't help. And we don't want to see, you know, something else as, well, that's not for kids, that's for the adults. 
but that we want to have a ministry and plan ministry that can involve people of all ages and all experience with the Word of God, um, and side by side in a way that, that cultivates some discussion. Um, and where Christians can say, you know, I, I was involved in, in the ministry of the church. Um, because the, like, the biggest things that we're aiming at are, number one, the ability to have a discussion and ask questions, and then the ability to have an answer from a fellow Christian, and that we don't just um, do the simple like youth ministry things, like uh, youth rally, youth Bible class, that sort of thing, that sections the, the younger people away from the more experienced Christians, that we want to do these things uh, together, so that, so that those young people get an experience of the Christian faith, the Christian ministry, and what it looks like. That it's not always this you know, fantastic, awesome event that uh, is really exciting, but at the same time that it is a, a glorious and a joyful thing to work on together. I guess that's the short answer, and that is going to wrap us up. <laughs>